Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I'll be honest with you. I love Jesus, but sometimes I find him really frustrating. Because it seems sometimes like no sooner do I feel like I've figured him out than he throws me a total curveball. When he encounters people that I would be happy to judge, Jesus shows only compassion and grace. And where I would look for leniency, Jesus offers judgment. Jesus always steadfastly resists my efforts to turn him into a predictable, one-dimensional savior. And I think this aspect of Jesus' character is on particularly strong display in our gospel passage for today. Here we find Jesus sending out 72 of his disciples on a mission. And here we see Jesus acting as a teacher and a mentor, as a proclaimer of peace and blessing, as someone who makes clear that the good news of God's kingdom is for everyone. And at the same time, we also find Jesus pronouncing woe and promising judgment and all of those less than cozy aspects of Jesus that we would really rather not think about very much. But think about them we must. And that's actually one of the gifts of the lectionary, the schedule of readings that's assigned for each Sunday. It forces us to read and to consider parts of scripture that otherwise we might prefer to avoid. And so today, we have to wrestle with the fact that in our gospel passage, we find both the sort of soft and fluffy Jesus and also the hard and prickly Jesus, a Jesus of gentle instructions and the Jesus of harsh words. We can't have one without the other. So let's look at this passage and see what we find. After this, verse 1 begins. It's easy when we're reading scripture to just skip over words like this, just kind of a meaningless detail. But actually, it's pretty important, this phrase. For one thing, it tells us when the thing that we're about to read happened, which is after, and presumably shortly after, whatever had happened before. And what happened before was the text that we read last week, the end of chapter 9, when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, was rejected by a village in Samaria, and warned three would-be disciples about the cost and the urgency of choosing to follow him. But that, after this, is also Luke's way of telling us that there is a connection, more than a temporal connection, between what happened before and what's about to happen. Because if you read Luke's gospel, you find that if he's just making a shift to a different story, he usually uses the word now. So he'll say, now Jesus was praying, or now he was teaching. But with saying after this, in verse 1 of our passage, Luke is signaling this connection between the previous events and what Jesus is about to do. So if you'll remember that in last week's passage, we noted that Jesus' purpose 
was going to Jerusalem to face suffering, death, and resurrection for the sake of salvation. And we noticed the urgency he expressed of his disciples joining with him as he pursues that purpose. And what does he do right on the heels of that? He sends 72 of his followers out in pairs to the towns and villages where he'll be going, and he instructs them to proclaim peace and to announce that the kingdom of God is near. I'm dwelling on this after this phrase a little bit and the connection it makes to last week's readings because I think that last week's themes of purpose and urgency are actually key to understanding the different aspects of Jesus that we see in the story we're reading today. Understanding the words of gentleness right next to the words of judgment. The words of peace that Jesus speaks reflect his purpose, and the words of judgment that he speaks reflect the urgency of that purpose. We'll unpack that more in a little bit. So what are, what are the words of gentleness? What's the soft and fluffy side of Jesus that we see here? Well, we see it if we look in the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples in verses 2 through 11. He tells them to go out. He tells them to go two by two. And he tells them, don't carry anything with you. No extra supplies. Nothing that would make them self-sufficient. Instead, he tells them that they're going to depend on the hospitality of the people to whom they have been sent. That means that they're going to stay with them, that they're going to get to know them, that they're really going to connect with them. And they will connect with them in the way that happens, that position of humility that happens when we receive others' hospitality. So they're to go out, not carrying extra supplies, and they're to enter a house and say, peace be to this house. Peace is the thing they are to lead with. Peace is shalom. It's that blessed state of God's reign and rule when all is as it should be. And that is what the disciples are to lead with. They come and they bless the house with the shalom of God. Jesus doesn't tell them, before you say anything, figure out whether these people seem worthy of my peace. He doesn't tell them, only go to houses where people do X or Y or Z so you don't accidentally speak peace over those other people. The opportunity to receive God's peace is offered to everyone. And Jesus tells them to eat whatever is put before them. Now, this isn't just about people being polite and cleaning their plates when they're eating with a guest, or as a guest. Where they are going, these villages that the disciples are going to, some of them are Jewish towns and villages, but some of them are Gentile towns and villages. And the Gentiles are not going to follow the same dietary laws that the Jews do. They might serve some unkosher food to the, to the disciples. And Jesus says, that doesn't matter. Eat what is given to you. I think what Jesus is saying here is that the message that the disciples are bringing is a message for all people, Gentile and Jew alike. 
And the disciples are supposed to proclaim that message with boldness, but also with tremendous humility. So he says, go, speak peace on them, eat whatever is put before you. And he says, heal people who are sick. Bring them to wholeness. Jesus says, I care about people's physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. So go, tend to those as well. And he says, proclaim the message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. What does that mean? I mean, presumably he wants them to say more than just that one sentence, right? The kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, in a very literal way, Jesus is somewhere nearby and he is on his way to wherever these disciples are. So Jesus, the kingdom of God, the incarnate kingdom of God has come near. But more than that, it means Jesus has brought God's kingdom near to these people. And if we're going to understand what God's kingdom means in Luke's gospel, I think we always have to look back to three things. The first is the Magnificat, Mary's song after the angel tells her that she is going to be pregnant with Jesus. And she praises God in this song for scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, exalting the humble, filling the hungry, and sending the rich away empty. The second thing we have to keep in mind is Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth when he quotes Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the third thing is what's called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. It's what we hear as the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep and those who are oppressed. But woe to the rich, to the full, to those who laugh, and to those who are well esteemed. This is the message of the kingdom of God that that the disciples are supposed to bring to these towns and villages that they visit. And Jesus makes it really clear, this will not always be a popular message. He says, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Who wants to sign up for that job? He says, people won't receive your blessings of peace that you offer. He says, some people may not receive you at all. And for those who don't receive the blessing of God's peace and the proclamation of God's kingdom, what are the disciples supposed to do for them? Well, he says, Shake the dust off your sandals as you leave town. But as you do that, say to them, nevertheless know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Even for those who won't receive Jesus' disciples, Jesus still wants to leave them with words of good news. And it's because this is the message that the disciples are to bring. This message of blessing and peace and the pronouncement of God's kingdom where the hungry are exalted, the humble are exalted, and the hungry are full. It's because this is the message 
that the disciples are supposed to bring, that Jesus' words for those who won't receive the message are so harsh. In verses 13 to 15, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you, that's Jesus' miracles, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But it's going to be better in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Oh, and Capernaum, there in Galilee, you will, do you think you're going to be exalted to heaven? Nope, Jesus says. You will be brought down to Hades. So Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were all Jewish towns where Jesus had done a lot of ministry, many healings, many signs and wonders. Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, are pagan towns. And what Jesus is saying to his fellow Jews, to the Gen- he's, what he's saying to them is that the Gentiles are reacting better to my message than you are. He says, you can't rest on the way things have always been. You have to find your place in the kingdom of God that I am bringing. And that place just might be a place of greater humility than you're used to. But there will be consequences if you do not. The consequences aren't because of God's vengeance or his anger or his wrath. The consequences are because you cannot benefit from the blessings of God's kingdom if you refuse to receive them. Jesus' words of woe and judgment are never comfortable for us. But I think that's okay. I think we probably should be uncomfortable. Because the purpose and the urgency of Jesus' ministry, while it is incredibly good news, it's not always comfortable or comforting. Particularly for those of us who tend to be comfortable in the kingdom of man and may feel like we have a lot to lose in the kingdom of God. We can't have one Jesus without the other. We can't have the Jesus of gentle instructions without the Jesus of harsh words. We cannot have the Jesus of justice without the Jesus of judgment. And just like we can't have one side of Jesus without the other, I think we need to be careful when we're reading the Gospels to make sure that we're not always putting ourselves on one side rather than the other. That we're not only putting ourselves in the shoes of one kind of person, the person who receives Jesus and welcomes him and joins him in his ministry, or the person who rejects Jesus and the proclamation of his kingdom. I think we have to consider the fact that we may be both. It is true that if we are professing Christians, then we have chosen to follow Jesus, and therefore it is appropriate for us to put ourselves in the place of the disciples in these stories. But I think we should always be asking ourselves whether we are living out that discipleship in the way that Jesus called his followers to, 
or if maybe sometimes we don't have a little more in common with those who didn't want to receive Jesus' message. And so I think as we look at this passage, we should ask ourselves questions on sort of both sides of that. If we think of ourselves like the disciples, I think we should ask, how might Jesus be sending us out like he did the 72? Where might he be sending us to go with peace and with healing and with the proclamation of the kingdom? And on the other side, I think we have to ask ourselves, Are there any ways that we are resisting the presence of the kingdom of God? And what might Jesus have to say to us about that? And here, I'm going to get very concrete. Like a lot of you, I am sure, over the last few weeks, I have been reading and watching with horror the stories that are coming out of the migrant detention camps on our border. Stories about children who do not have adequate food or clothing or medicine or hygiene or sleeping arrangements, let alone who do not have the love and nurture and protection of their parents or other relatives. These are children who have been brought here by relatives who are seeking relief for them from the violence and poverty and corruption of their native countries. And I want to say to you this morning that I am utterly convinced that Jesus weeps over those camps. I am convinced as well that Jesus is sending us as his followers, just like he did the 72, that he is sending us out to relieve the suffering of these children to bring peace, to bring healing, to bring the kingdom of God. And I am convinced that Jesus will have harsh words for us if we do not heed his call, if we do nothing. I want to be really clear here. This is not about politics. It is not even about policy. I'm not telling you what our country's immigration policy should be. I'm not telling you how we should decide who gets asylum and who doesn't. Because there is room for good and reasonable and faithful people to disagree about those policies. Hopefully with a little more civility than most of us in our country are doing right now. But nonetheless, what I am telling you is that separating children from their families, keeping them in chain-link enclosures without meeting their basic human needs, I am telling you that is evil. And Jesus wants us, he wants to send us, who are his disciples, he wants to send us out to do something about it. What does it look like to be disciples who are sent out to do something about it? I've been reading about St. Clement's Church in El Paso. It's an Anglican church, just like ours. And they have been caring over the last number of years for migrants who are released from detention centers awaiting their asylum hearings. When when people are processed through these detention centers and, and sent out to wait for their hearings, they're often just left in the middle of a city they don't know with no money, no food, no resources, no ability to speak the language. And so what a lot of churches in these border cities have done is come around and started caring for these vulnerable folks. 
So for years, St. Clement's has been offering every month or so for three days at a time, beds, shelter, food, showers, care for these migrants. And from that, what was once just responding to a need, as I read in one of their stories, it's now a crisis. And they're just fumbling to respond to all of this need that is around them. And they are certainly not the only church in town that is doing this. And they have developed out of this need a whole organization that is trying to meet the needs of the vulnerable migrants in their community. A friend of mine named Heather Gormley is a priest uh, in a church in Indiana. It's a church plant called Tree of Life Anglican Church. It's really not a lot bigger than our congregation, a little bit younger. But she brought some people from her congregation from Indiana down to El Paso. Adults, youth, they came and they went to St. Clement's and they helped. They packed bags full of supplies. They cared for the people who were staying there. And they also went to Clint, Texas, which is the town where the biggest camp housing these children is. And they stood outside the camp and they sang. They sang, sing alleluia to the Lord. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He's coming back someday to reign. They stood outside that camp along the side of a busy road in the dry Texas dust, and they sang the proclamation of God's kingdom, and they held signs in Spanish that said, Jesus loves you. These are disciples who have answered Jesus' call. And we can't all do that. I get it. We literally cannot all drive to El Paso. That probably wouldn't ultimately be that helpful anyway. But we can do things that make a difference. We can call our elected representatives. We can donate money and supplies to the organizations that are caring for these people on our border. AnglicanImmigrantInitiative.com is one organization that's begun through our province. And from there, you'll find links to this church in El Paso and ways to give money online by check. They also have an Amazon wish list where you can go in and just purchase the supplies that they need. So we can donate money or supplies. And we can pray. I know often this gets put on the last, at the end of the list, like some sort of like, yeah, 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 when you've done all the stuff that really helps, then you can pray. But you and I both know that that is not how prayer is. I was reading a piece in the Atlantic magazine this week. Uh, It was published a couple weeks ago by Caitlin Flanagan. And she's a a journalist, quite well-known, and she is a Christian, despite having been raised by atheist activist parents in Berkeley, California in the 60s. And she's reflecting some on her upbringing and how that has influenced her response as a Christian to what is going on at the border. She talks about how when she was a kid, these atheist uh, activist Berkeley parents of hers sent her to Catholic school because they wanted private education at a low cost. And she said, I think they assumed all the abracadabra stuff would just kind of float over me. But then she writes this, 
But they had some other tricks up their sleeves, those Catholics. The first was prayer, which just about knocked me flat the first time I saw its practical application. One of the nuns came to talk to us about some dire issue from the real world. Maybe it was Vietnam. Maybe it was someone from the parish who was very ill. I don't remember. She summed up the situation, and I sat there wondering what the action plan was, because that was the world I inhabited. And then she said that what we were going to do was pray about it. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Something terrible was happening, and it would somehow improve if a classroom full of sixth graders closed their eyes and mumbled. This was the most radical thing I'd ever encountered. Why not give it a try? I know that you know that there is power in prayer. And so I believe that we are called as disciples of Jesus to pray for the children who are in these camps, to pray for their health, to pray for their emotional and spiritual well-being, to pray that they would not be traumatized by their experience, to pray that they would be united with family in safety, and to pray for everybody who's working in these camps because they are being traumatized by this too. And to pray that our country would come to a more just way of caring for the most vulnerable who come to our borders. As Jesus was going toward the cross, toward his death for us, He sent out 72 people to go where he was going to go, to go ahead of him. But now that Jesus is ascended in heaven and his Holy Spirit is here, his spirit is everywhere. Jesus is already where he's calling us to go. I'll close again with Caitlin Flanagan's words, how she ended her article because these words are my feelings as well. We know exactly where Christ is, she writes, because he told us. He's with the sick and the jailed and the hungry. He's in those camps with those suffering children, and we need to be there too. Lord, would you give us the grace to answer your call? Amen.